You're listening to the Ali at UNT podcast, produced by the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. Learn something new in every episode as we interview UNT faculty, subject matter experts, and lifelong learners in our community. To learn more about our non-credit courses and events, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli at unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ali at UNT member, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas, known to most of us as Ali. I'm speaking with artist Francesca de Atria Romano about her illustrious art career and a bit about art in general. Francesca has attained over 160, yes, you heard me right, 160 awards in recognition of her artistic talent. In fact, Four of her pieces are on permanent display at the Staten Island Museum, and the National Library of Congress owns one of her etchings. In 1989, Francesca was awarded Woman in History status by the New York State Assembly and named a Woman of Achievement in 1992. Quite impressively, she also received a NOVA Award from PBS for a film documentary involving her New York City high school students and a Tibetan monk who created a mandala for New York City. Francesca's accomplishments also include designing the Staten Island Ferry logo, which I might add has become a collector's item and has been mass produced onto many products. Having lived in the New York City area during 9-11, I am particularly touched by the fact that her New York skyline etchings led to Francesca being chosen to serve as a member of a panel of artists who designed the first Columns of Light Memorial just after the 9-11 attacks brought down the World Trade Center buildings. Twice named New York City High School Art Educator of the Year, Francesca also somehow found time to serve on numerous boards involving the New York City art community and others. Welcome, Francesca. Thank you, Susan. I'm very happy to be here. Well, we are happy to have someone of your talent and background here with us, too. And I'll tell you, I cannot get over the fact that you were invited to be part of that panel designing the Columns of Light Memorial for 9-11. That was one of the most moving and appropriate sights I could have seen at the time. We were all so devastated following that horrible attack, and it seemed to express so much our grief and our hope. Can you talk a bit about that experience? Yes. I was only on the panel for one late afternoon into evening because I became very distressed over the questioning, and uh, I believe his name was Mr. Silberman or Silberstein, who originally owned the properties of the Twin Towers. And he wanted to immediately start building his Twin Towers again in the same spot. And I just, with my New York accent and my temper, I I just said, no, you cannot do that because that is now sacred and holy ground where people have lost their lives. We are still trying to go through the rubble and see if any remains are available. And of course, there's not everything is ash. I said, 
you cannot rebuild those twin towers in that area. I said, why don't you consider building them in the Dog Commercial Square, which was that beautiful square that was in the back of the buildings that had that wonderful globe. And especially in the spring and summertime, there were so many people going out there for lunch and to listen to radio stations and enjoy the whole New York scene. So, I mean, thank goodness they took my advice about that. And I said there should be lights. There should be beams of light. There should be water. There needs to be you know, a memorial with water and place where people can go and pray for the ones they lost. I lost a total of 12 people. Oh, dear. Yes. About 11 were my students. Uh, so many of the streets on, in Staten Island are named after these former students. I lost somebody who was dear to us. He was only in his early 20s. He was going to get married in two weeks. His parents suffered desperately after his loss. And then my neighbor lost her son, who was a fireman. And I lost someone I knew who was a fireman. So the, the list just goes on and on. And I was going to memorials after memorials when all this happened. I was actually almost there on September 11th. You actually showed some of your work in a gallery in the World Trade Center, did you not? Yes. There was a gallery at the bottom of the World Trade Center. I believe his name was George. Forgive me for not remembering his last name. Unfortunately, he's passed away. He had sold one of my etchings to someone who was going back home to Paris. And he had called me up and says, Francesca, do you have another one? And I looked in my flatbed drawers because when I did my etchings, I would do two or three at a time and keep them in flatbed drawers and keep my numbers very accurate. So I checked my drawers and I said, yes, I have another one. He said, fabulous. Just please bring the etching in. Now, I brought the etching in. Oh, I was going to bring it in unmatted and unframed because at the gallery, he was the man who worked with the customer. So I said I was going to my downtown Brooklyn Board of Education meeting that morning because I was still teaching in, at Newdorp High School on Staten Island, and I had become the acting assistant principal of art and music and everything else that I, <laughs> I was asked to, to administer. And so I left my home early to leave my plans at the high school. Then from the high school, I was going to downtown Manhattan. And I told George, I'll just pop the trunk. You'll come out or somebody will come out. Take the etching out of my trunk. This way I can hop right back on to the Brooklyn Bridge and get over to my meeting in downtown Brooklyn because that's where the Board of Education for New York City is. So needless to say, I'm watching everything happen from plane one to plane two, going into the building, and the rest of the world doesn't know what's happening, and I'm itching my way onto the, I'm on the BQE, and now I'm, I'm, I'm past the Atlantic Avenue exit, which is your last exit in Brooklyn, and so I am now directly across from the Twin Towers, and I saw the first plane go in, and I saw the second plane go in, and I was right there when everything came down. 
I can't imagine yeah. how that must have been for you. That was a horrible experience. That was so hard. We had no communication because our cell phones weren't working because the tower had come down. And mm-hmm. I was very concerned about all my relatives who were also working in the Twin Towers. Yeah. Well, we're going to move on to another experience of yours in New York, and that was the Novo Award you received from PBS. I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with mandalas, but there are some who probably are not. Can you describe what a mandala is and why did the Tibetan monk create the mandala for New York City? Both my school and the rest of the New York City schools had this program, which was an interdisciplinary program where we try to bring multiculturalism into our domain. Because let's face it, New York City is really a melting pot. We had so many different backgrounds and varieties of different heritage, and our students came from everywhere. So we were trying to explain through art, art history, regular history, literature, and sometimes science, that everything is connected. So we had the opportunity to invite a Tibetan monk to come to our high school. And I had to get all kinds of permits from the city and so forth. I was able to house him at a friend's home. And he stayed there for at least two weeks. We took him out to dinner. We explained to him about our American ways. He spoke English very, very well. And he began his mandala for our school and we actually invited all the feeder schools around all the elementary schools all the intermediate schools and the other high schools that were in the metropolitan area to take buses to take them to our school to see this happening what a mandala is it's a wonderful spiritual ritual that you or If you were living in India and you were going to, let's say, get married or a pair, a a birth, whatever, and if you had the wealth to do this or if you had the means to do this, you would hire a monk to create a mandala at the entrance of your home to welcome in the wonderful good spirits. I guess once the wedding was over or the birth was over and everything was successful, you would break up this sand mandala. Now, the mandalas are made of sand. He did a tremendously large mandala in our gymnasium using special tools to blow the sand, the different colors. He had jars and jars of different colors. And he makes this beautiful decorative mandala. And in the meantime, we had hired professional videographers to document this. And so this came with a grant. Now, I didn't get the grant, but they chose our school because they were so impressed with our program. I wrote the program along with another teacher, Dorothy Gutman, and my former vice principal, Naomi Lonigan. And so we created this wonderful event. And so the film technicians helped, obviously, We all got this one award that we had to share. I just have a piece of paper hanging around (laughs) somewhere, but they actually got to take home what looks like an Academy Award or whatever. We had it filmed 
I asked the, at that time, the mayor of Staten Island. We had our road blocked off because we had to dismantle the mandala religiously. And so we had a parade. So not only did we do this through the arts and the social studies and the literature written on mandalas, and we had an authentic Tibetan monk there, but we also got permission to parade it, and we had to use our music department playing the drums and a sitar of all things, and we marched the monk with poles and a wonderfully decorated canopy all the way down New Dorp Lane to where the waters are. Our Verrazano Narrows waters goes into the Atlantic Ocean. So we have it all documented, and it was deposited back into nature. That was it. And then we went and overboard. And Channel 13 back in New York City was playing this over and over again. And I was like so happy that we were getting so, so many accolades for this. What an experience. How did your students react to that? Oh, my students were enthralled. You have to understand this. This is New York City students. And they could be tough. But they enjoyed this so much. And all the feeder schools enjoyed it and asked the monk questions. They They were as good as gold. They were really so, so well behaved and respectful. That's wonderful. And you brought some wonderful things into New York City with that mandala. Now, I know that you are very, very well known for the Staten Island Ferry artwork that you do and for the logo that they use. Uh, Can you talk about that? I happen to have had the pleasure of being at your gallery not too many days ago and looking at the incredible work that you have. And what impressed me very much was that you have family members in your artwork. A lot of my family members that I have in my artwork have passed on. But my grandpa, who was also an artist over in Italy, he's in one of my etchings. Then I have two uncles that are in my etchings. Then I have my sons. They're in my etchings also. I was always told when I was going to college, you have to either write about something you know or create, do your creativity on something you know. So when I started taking etching lessons, I fell in love with the medium. I was a painter. I still am a painter. I've done oils. I've done, You name it, I've done it. But the etching was so empowering to me and so delicate and so beautiful. And it... It takes your mind to, to draw onto the zinc plate. You have to do everything backwards. The lettering on the Staten Island Ferry had to be backwards. The image that you want to see when it's finished has to be done in your head completely in reverse. So, I, of course, I always admired Leonardo da Vinci for writing backwards and doing his images in reverse. So I learned how to do that. And then when you finally take off your resin off the, the zinc plate and you dipped it into the nitric acid, you know, maybe for the, the 30th time because all your different values with your aquatint, every time you put it into the nitric acid, you time how long it's been in the acid bath. And then you mark it down. Then you continue. And the more you put it into the acid bath, 
the darker the area gets. And then you cover up that area if it gets too dark. So I would put it into the acid bath at least in some of my etchings 30 times to get the different values. Now, when I print up my etchings, they always were printed up in black and white. And if they look terrific in black and white, then you you know they're going to look terrific in color. But the color has to be made on a separate plate to match up. So you're talking about many plates sometimes to match up completely with the original plate. It's a time-consuming project. But I loved it, and thank you, God, that I I made um, a secondary living on this. <laughs> it was well worth your time, I have to thank say. You. And I know it's been printed on coffee cups and hats, okay. of which I now have a new goal. I'm going to find one of those, Francesca. I know they're collector's items now. So. Yeah. You have another story regarding your etchings. Can you talk a little bit about that? That's a fun story. Well, I said to myself, you know what? I'm going to Amsterdam. Besides all the other sites, I mean, I was so interested in going to the place where Rembrandt lived and worked and the Dutch art. Oh my God, it was so wonderful. I go to Amsterdam and I said, I am a printmaker from New York City. I sent them some images and so forth. And they said, we would love for you to come on this particular day during your vacation time. And we will allow you to pull one of Rembrandt's original prints. O-M-G. Wow. So <laughs> I am so thrilled. I am ready to, to do this. And so I, I got to Rembrandt's home. And in the room where he created his etchings, I had a small audience. I inked up one of his plates. And then you have this what's called tarlatan fabric. Then you start to wipe down and I brought my own apron. I had my own apron that was ink stained and paint stained, but I was enjoying this. And my partner at the time, such a bad photographer, needless to say, I pull the print. I said, take a photo of me with the print. And he takes this photo and it went out my head. Oh, dear. You never know it was me who pulled the print, except you're looking at my hands. Well, now we have it. Now we have it on tape. You taught for many, many years. And fortunately, now you share your expertise in teaching art with Ollie. Correct. And also in your community. What is it that you most would like people to understand about art? Well, I understand that a lot of the people have finally retired in their lives, and perhaps they have not had the opportunity to travel as much, especially now recently with COVID and so forth. But I'd like to instill in them many cultural ideas, how wonderful it is to not only the visit to different countries, but go into their major museums and enjoy what is there for you to feast upon. It's this wonderfulness of being retired and devouring all the things that you've missed while people were working and trying to earn a living. Now you can truly enjoy all of the art history. And I always love to speak about tidbits that they never knew. 
and they just chuckle and laugh about these stories. When I talk about Michelangelo or Da Vinci, did you know this? Or I talk about Rembrandt, did you know this? And they say, no, not really. And it just makes their experiences a, a lot of fun. And I truly enjoy sharing these experiences with them. And, you know, and then they ask me, well, how do you know this? Well, I've traveled a lot and I've read a lot. And that's what I love to do. So I plan to travel again in the future, and I travel to continually reading and learning, just like everyone else wants to do. You gave me a list, and we'll talk about the isms a little later again, but you gave me a list of isms, and I happened to count them up. There were over 22 isms, like surrealism and modernism and that kind of thing. And I was just amazed by the amount of different types, types. genres in the history of art. It's incredible. It is. With contemporary artists now, I have to do a little bit more research because I'm such, you know, I, I go back with a historian. I have to really keep up with what's happening now. So I'm not as versed as the new arts the newer arts. The, I mean, I love the happenings. I was involved in a few happenings back in Manhattan. I would love to see more of this happening. I realize now that people are into the immersion types of arts, which Dallas is providing. And yes, that is a wonderful, wonderful venue for people to experience. I'd like to see more of that happening in Texas and making uh, people more aware of the recent Van Gogh immersions. Now they're doing the Frida Kahlo immersions. And I say to them, you could take a trip over to Mexico and you could go right into Frida Kahlo's home and see actually where she and Diego Rivera painted. And you see her corset from her unfortunate accident right there on her bed. And you really feel for her life and what she went through. And now you understand why her paintings are filled with all of these symbolisms of the agony of her not having to to bear a child. Yeah. That's very interesting. In fact, that was one of the things I wanted to ask you about was how we can deepen and expand our appreciation of the different movements and different styles of art. And immersion certainly is an incredible experience. Can you think of any other ways that we might be able to help ourselves, to educate ourselves in this? Well, just read, continually read, go go to the Kimball Museum, go to the Dallas museum, go to the modern museums. I still have to make it to a number of museums. And if even if you go to another state, please go to the state's museum because you can never tell. They may have a Rembrandt. They may have a Picasso that you've never seen before. They may have a French impression. You, you get wowed and you say, oh my goodness, I remember seeing this image on my books or whatever it was on a greeting card. But the original is in Nashville somewhere, or it's in Kentucky. I mean, how wonderful that some museums were able to bid and, and get these wonderful, priceless pieces of artwork. And I will also just mention that I do, I do not feel that wealthy 
millionaires should own any of these. I think that if they have an authentic piece of a Renoir or Lutrec or whatever, please share it with the world. Don't just hang it in your living room and brag about how you have this original Warhol or whatever. Put it or help create more museums. And that's what I would like to see. Oh, I agree with you. I saw a Van Gogh exhibit at the Met, and I saw one here in Dallas. Mm -hmm. And then I went to the immersion experience, and they were all three totally different. And I gained so much from the three different ones. It was incredible how, even though you feel as though maybe you have already seen a featured artist, if you go to a different place and see another exhibit, the way it's designed, you can learn so much more. So, and be reinforced by what you already knew, but learn so many other facets and details of that artist and the style. Each museum has its own curator, uh, invited curators, the way they put up an exhibition is can be absolutely marvelous. One time at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, we had a special exhibition of Monet's cathedrals. And it was in a very large room. And you were able to see the cathedral series that he did. Now, he did it from the apartment of his brothers in Paris. And when he painted the cathedral at early dawn, maybe 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning. Then he did another one at 8, 9, and he does all 12 of these. You stand in the middle astonished at that same cathedral looking so beautifully different with the different values of colors that he places onto each different time of the day. And These are kind of marvelous ideas that artists can only come, well, I could say can only come up. There are many creative people. But when you say, oh, my God, what a creative idea this is. This is like when you go to the immersions and you saw uh, Van Gogh's windmills spinning around and the birds are flying. It just adds another dimension. It certainly does. It certainly does. Now, one of my favorite things to do when I was in New York was to visit the phenomenal museums there, the Met, the Frick, MoMA. Uh, The Met is world-renowned, largest art museum in the Western Hemisphere with a collection of over 2 million works. And you were a docent there. What was that experience like? I miss that the most in my life. I was a docent for non for profit organizations. That meant if I wanted to take my students there, I could, and I, I could explain a particular gallery. If I wanted to take a college there, I was not paid, but I did this as a volunteer. What was unusual about this is that some of the colleges would call me and say, oh, we'd love to have you take our alumni on this trip, and so forth and so on. And while I was there, The total amount of people I could take was 24. But as I'm walking around and I'm explaining about the different galleries and the different pieces of artwork, I would notice that other people would attach themselves. That would be me. (laughs) To my gallery talk. And I've had several well-known actors and actresses. I had Julia Roberts join my group. 
and she was in uh, the French Impressionist area when she kind of stopped to listen to me, and then she just she gave me a, a, a wonderful thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Then I had Dick Van Dyke another time. Yeah. So you'll never know who you're going to see at the Metropolitan Museum. <laughs> That's amazing. That's incredible. Now, I know you are still very, very involved in yes. your artistic endeavors yes. right here. Yes. And uh, one of which, well, I don't know which to talk about first. You're getting ready to have an exhibition right here, a very mm-hmm. large exhibition here in mm-hmm. Denton. Right. Should we talk about that first? Oh, I'd love to. Okay. Well, when I got here to Denton, Texas, you know, no one really knows my my abilities as an artist, but nevertheless, I wanted to start getting involved in the local arts. So on someone's recommendation, I went to the what, what they call GDAC. It's called the Greater Denton's Arts Council. I found the building. I love the town of Denton. I, to me, it's very bohemian and not kind of from that ilk where I could just hang out at that at that town with all of the college professors and all the college kids, it just oozes that atmosphere. It's great energy. Yes. So I started to go downtown and then I found GDAC and I went in and I said, wow, this is a marvelous area. And then I saw online that VAS, which is the Visual Arts of South Texas, I believe. So I joined that. I joined GDAC. And when I joined VAST, I exhibited and other artists were talking to me and said, hey, let's get involved. Let's have you get involved. And I sold a piece. And then I said, you know, this would be a really great place. So I sent GDAC my biography and, and a list of my images. And so I have been getting into different exhibitions. And GDAC offered me a one woman exhibition in the large large gallery and my work will be up i'm mean, so i'm so excited about this we put the artwork up april 5 and it goes all the way to june 23 so i should have anywhere from 16 to 18 pieces on the walls but on the opening night which will be may 27th i will be bringing more portable easels for that one night to put my smaller paintings on So I may have about 24, 25 paintings there with a wonderful opening that I'm sharing with two other galleries, and it's going to be a wonderful evening. Are you able to talk about the theme now, or do you need to wait? Yes, I'm fine with that. So I'm putting away my my fairies and my etching (laughs) press. I, (laughs) I belong to the oldest art club in Manhattan in all of the United States. It is the Salmagundi Art Club, and it's on 5th Avenue between 11th and 10th Avenue. And I donated my etching press and all of my etching equipment to the club, and I became a permanent member of the club, and I'm honored that way, and they use my etching press all the time. And so when I go into Manhattan, I've got my wonderful club to hang out at. Okay, so now... My etchings are done. I do have a lot of my original zinc plates, but the museum also has four of my zinc plates. Now, what am I going to do in Texas? Well, I'm looking around here, 
and I'm see- I'm not seeing any mountains. I'm I'm seeing dry, <laughs> cracked dirt, and I used to call it dirt until someone said to me, "No, you have to you have to refer to it as soil." And I said, "Well, okay, it's it's the soil." And so I am now painting rocks, rust, and rugged terrain. So I said, rocks are going to be my go-to item. So all of my new paintings, I use a lot of palette knife. I build up my tones first with a brush. Then I build up with palette knife, allowing all my previous colors to kind of shine through. And my final paintings are images of canyons, of large rocks, boulders, dried soil. And I embellish the foreground with real gemstones. Now, gemstones and crystals. Why? Because you take these gemstones from the ground. And I always felt that they are therapeutic for us. We as women, we like to wear our gemstones, but I always felt as though from the earth, you can bring up therapeutic solutions for your skin and for your well-being. People seem to forget that sulfur is used for, for many medicinal things. So when you look at the composition of how colors got their names the old names of the yellow ochre. Well, yellow ochre is from the ground. And black obsidian, that's a stone. So we give our paints these stones and gem names, but we have to know Jasper Red. You know, that's Jasper. So I love to embellish my paintings with real crystals and real gemstones. You also have played a big part in enhancing the art community, Robeson Ranch. Yes. I believe the club is called the Paint and Palette Club. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. I love the way you have encouraged the artists in the community to exhibit their work. Yes. Yes. The club is growing each and every day. Everyone says to me, oh, do we have to be an artist to belong? I said, you know what? If you have this creative ability... Come into the room. See what we're doing. We've got a few professionals there. And if you and if there's a gal in there who does nothing, you know, she does oils and she does inks, the new alcohol inks. We do collages. We help each other. We've got all different varieties going on in there. And if someone needs my help with painting or perspective, or I can't get this right, or what do you suggest? I just go over and help them. Carolyn Buckman started the paint and brush many years ago when it was a very small group. She helps tremendously also. So we have people there from all talents and all degrees of expertise. Well, that's where I got my list of isms because you (laughs) shared with me what you were encouraging people to do for the next exhibition. And I think it's so clever because not only does it encourage the artists to create their example of an ism, but you also have the viewers trying to guess which, can you talk about that? You could explain that much better than I could. Okay. Well, I noticed that there weren't any exhibitions going on here at Robeson when I got here. And I would say to a few other people that were there, why aren't you exhibiting? 
well, you know, it's a lot of work. And blah, blah. They made me president. And now we're having about four shows a year. And the last show we did was called Dressed Up Easels. And our residents went wild over this because it was so much fun to walk in to see a painting that related to how the easel was dressed up. And then we have these little contests. Who, who, who has the greatest or the funniest easel? Who has the most creative easel? Who has the most colorful easel? Who has the most fashionable easel? So with the isms now, for the residents to brush up on their ism and their art history, they're going to have to match up the artist's paintings with the ism that it falls into. So you may have some artist doing surrealism or expressionism or impressionism or dadaism or fauvism or mannerism or classicalism or photorealism. <laughs> They're going to have to match up all those artists and the one who gets like a hundred percent or the three that get close to that will be able to come into our art studio and pick up an authentic piece of artwork as winning prizes. Francesca, it is absolutely admirable the way you've shared your talent, your expertise all over. You're teaching art history at Ollie, obviously connected with Denton, exhibiting at Denton, and then what you just mentioned about the community at Robeson Ranch. I can't thank you enough. Oh, I truly, truly enjoy this, and I truly want to open my arms up and embrace all who are interested in this. Something tells me we're just beginning to hear from you. I- <laughs> <laughs> we have big plans. I have about keeping them zipped up, but I have really big plans. <laughs> That's so very exciting. Thank you so much for being with us here today. I enjoyed it thoroughly and learned much, and I'm excited to what's to come in the future. Perfect, Susan. Thank you again for inviting me. You bet. This has been Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas with Francesca Deatria Romano. Thanks for listening. The Ollie at UNT podcast is recorded and edited by Susan Supak and produced by me, Jordan Williams. If you enjoyed this episode, check out our previous interviews and subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast app. To receive email notifications about each new episode, join our email list at olli.unt.edu slash podcast. 